So Luther has this, uh, what may seem to us as naive confidence in a God who uh, comes to us with this, as you were saying, um, a weak and foolish word uh, from a weak and foolish act of getting himself crucified. Uh, but he has the confidence that, that this is a message that uh, will strike human hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit and, and, and change lives. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. If you have talked to me at any point, you will know that Martin Luther is one of my favorite theologians to read, one of my favorite theologians to think about, and one of those theologians that I keep coming back to the older and older I get. There's many reasons for that, but one of them is I find his commitment to the Word of God so important. Uh, Every time I read Luther, it comes off fresh as he uh, articulates his devotion to God's Word, his commitment to God's Word, both in the lectern and in the pulpit, and through the written page in so many different ways. Uh, Luther stands, of course, at the beginning of the Reformation of the 16th century, and Martin Luther When we think about his life and the controversies that erupted, it really is Martin Luther that we have to keep coming back to uh, because the Reformation's understanding of the authority of the Bible, uh, well, it begins with Luther, some of Luther's most famous uh, stances on uh, the authority inspiration of Scripture. Uh, Everything from the Diet of Worms to some of the books he penned that uh, insisted, and uh, we see this even in some of his debates, he insists that uh, as much as he appreciates the tradition that has come before him, Scripture and Scripture alone must be his final authority. It also raises the question, though, how do we understand Luther, not only Luther's uh, view of Scripture, but also uh, Luther's interpretation of Scripture? How did Luther interpret Scripture? What was his hermeneutic. And there we get into not just uh, what Luther thought the Bible is, but how he thought the Bible was meant to function. Well, I can't think of anyone better to discuss Martin Luther and the Word of God than Robert Kolb. And I have invited him to come on the Credo podcast for this very reason. Of course, many of our listeners may know him from his many books, or perhaps you've been a student at Concordia Seminary where he teaches. Uh, he is the Emeritus Professor of Systematic Theology there at Concordia in St. Louis. His many, many books on Luther uh, have been so well received, and I can't name them all here. A couple, though, I would recommend to our listeners are The Genius of Luther's Theology, as well as his book Luther and the Stories of God. Uh, I also recommend his book, Martin Luther, Confessor of the Faith, uh, and his most recent volume, which is so rich, is called Martin Luther and the Enduring Word of God. 
Robert Kolb, uh, thank you so much for joining me on the Credo Podcast. Thank you for the opportunity. You know, one of the things I've enjoyed so much about your writing is you don't just um, you don't just present us with what Luther believed, but you take us uh, behind the scenes, so to speak, to the man himself. Uh, you have a a gift, I think, for combining uh, on the one hand historical theology and then church history. Not only letting us see Luther's thoughts, but uh, what are some of the historical cir- circumstances that led him? in that direction. That certainly is true in any number of, uh, of your books, including uh, your mo- your mo- one of your most recent books on Luther, uh, Martin Luther and the Enduring Word of God. It's not an easy task, though, I imagine. Um, let me just give you an example of this. Uh, uh, what One issue you tackle is neo-orthodoxy and how neo-orthodoxy has interpreted or perhaps at times misinterpreted Luther. Uh, maybe we could start there and talk about how uh, maybe if, you know if we think back to Luther's lifetime, 1520s, but especially the 1530s, as he's articulating what he believes about Scripture. Um, how, how would you say neo-orthodoxy? Uh, how has it properly or improperly understood uh, Luther's view about? Christ, uh, not just Christ, but but the Word of God in terms of the Bible itself, and, and how would that differ from from how you understand Luther? Um, I think one of the the key elements in all this is really his his philosophical background, his training. Uh, it was it was somewhat eclectic, uh, eclectic in terms of of what he drew on out of the Middle Ages, but fundamentally his instructors had been um, oriented by the uh, philosophy and theology of William of Ockham as it was uh, conveyed through Gabriel Beale. William of Ockham lived in the first half of the 14th century, and Beale was uh, about Luther's grandfather's age. Uh, He lived in the the late 15th century. And we often hear criticism uh, of the Ockhamist tradition from Luther, uh, because they taught that you had to do some good works, even though they weren't truly worthy, to be able to earn enough grace to do the truly uh, worthy good works. And and that whole scheme uh, of getting uh, to heaven, of, of earning salvation, Luther sharply rejected uh, with, with passion. Uh, but from Ockham, Luther also uh, got an emphasis on uh, first of all, that God is almighty, and then secondly, that God is very interested in cr- in his created uh, world, his created order. Um, Occam uh, is, is uh, contrasted with the so-called realist uh, theologians and philosophers of his time because he believed that our, our concepts come from experiencing uh, what's here in in the world, and that's where where reality really lies. And so Luther had the ability to conceive that God uh, is present. One of his chief themes is the presence of God, and and that God is present and actually at work doing His thing uh, through uh, what I'd like to call the selected elements of the created order, including the written word of God in Scripture. And and so this this idea that that the Holy Spirit is, as 
as uh, Luther says a couple of times, nowhere more present than in in the in the written word of Scripture. Um, that I think uh, is an idea that was hard to get across. Uh, also, uh, in the in the early 20th century, when when also the neo orthodox theologians, for all the the good that they worked uh, in the aftermath of World War One. Um, were, were somewhat handicapped by German idealism and just couldn't quite, quite grasp the fact that uh, that God's actually there in the book. Um, I've I've had instructors who said, uh, "Don't put God in a box." Oh, uh, God put Himself in this book, and He's lying there in wait for you. Is is Luther's message? I love the way you just described that uh, because it, it's it, it just reminds us how personal this word is uh, th- that uh, God's not removed from it somehow in some distant way uh, but but you even say you know God Himself is in the in the book uh, that that raises uh, a, another facet of Luther's uh, understanding of of the Bible itself. Uh, which you highlight again and again, and that, and that is um, God's true presence in Scripture. Now, uh, usually when true presence or, or just presence, any, any type of presence is referred to, our, our minds immediately go to, say, uh, the table, the supper. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, you also note that Luther, um, besides all those debates over the supper, Luther has a strong understanding of, of God's presence in uh, the inspiration of, of Scripture, but then also how the Spirit then takes the Word and utilizes the Word uh, in terms of the gospel itself. Uh, how would you—I know there's so much to say here, but how, how would you describe the presence or the true presence of this triune God, uh, and especially that third person, the Holy Spirit, um, uh, in, in regards to the text itself, I think that that um, it's important to begin with Luther's understanding of of the of the personhood of God. He he's got an intensely personal view of God, and this this person, like human persons created in God's image, uh, he's a person who likes to talk. And his talk is not just um, descriptive, um, and we we talk in the last 30 or 40 years a lot about performative speech, but I think Luther's view is that it's more than just performative speech in, in the way we understand uh, the call of an umpire or the verdict of a judge uh, and so forth. It's actually creative, and then with the gospel, recreative speech, uh, as God... Uh, the God who loves to talk also loves uh, to invent and make things and and make new creatures out of sinners. He, he will talk about conversion as a creatio ex nihilo, creating us out of the nothingness of our sinfulness. Uh, so I think that that sense of, of it's just God's nature to be talking to us. Um, and, and this God of conversation is also a God then uh, of fellowship, of uh, of uh, of community, and God likes to be in our face. We might say, uh, and and you make the point that that uh, Luther sees the Holy Spirit as not only present in the um, in the uh, inspiration or the writing of Scripture, uh, 
but he sees the Holy Spirit present in in the delivery of Scripture as well, in in the sermon, in in uh, he calls it uh, uses a monastic phrase, the mutual conversation of Christians with one another. Uh, so so this uh, strong emphasis on God as a Creator who speaks, strong emphasis on the presence of God. God God seeks us out. Uh, I'd like to say that that the first evangelism call in human history took place there in Eden, where God when God says, "Where are you?" Um, not what what have you done wrong, but what's the relationship here when when I can't find you? Mm. Um, all of that contributes then to this sense that um, when you open Scripture, when you read Scripture, the Holy Spirit is there, um, continuing to do what He did in the writing of the book, uh, as the book then um, I guess modern uh, linguists would say reads. The reader and and uh, addresses the reader and actually then makes an impact on the reader. That that is powerful. Uh, when we think of, I, I like how you pointed back to Genesis three, uh, where God asked that uh, that question, "Where are you?" This this first uh, gospel word, uh, and, and we know that yes, there's judgment to come, but ultimately. When we get to Genesis three fifteen, there's there's this hint of of something more, something saving, uh, a hope yet to come. That that brings us to Luther's uh, when Luther uh, discusses um, this this word that God has breathed out. This word, as you you said, Luther sees God as the God who loves to talk. As he begins to talk in redemptive categories, uh, that that's really uh, hits us right in the face, as, as you've said, but uh, the gospel that Scripture brings is one that's not always welcomed by the world. And, and I, the reason I'm bringing all this up is because uh, Luther's theology of the cross, uh, there seems to be a relation between his theology of the cross and his theology of the Bible— uh, on the one hand, his theology of the cross is is something where the, the world sees the cross as a weakness. And likewise, when they come to the, the Bible, they see this as a weakness. Uh, the, the text itself is a, is, is a foolishness to them. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe you could you could tease this out, but but can you address how is it that Luther uh, sees this relation uh, between the cross and the text? And, and how does this move Luther to, to maybe— um, uh, tease out his own understanding of the hidden and the revealed God. That's that's a, a that's a good illustration of how church history, uh, looking at just the the way events unfold, and uh, and Christian thought uh, can't really be separated. Uh, in fifteen seventeen, as as most people who know anything about the Reformation know. Uh, Luther intervened in a dispute, uh, or that did, really started a dispute over the uh, the propriety of selling indulgences. He was, as an Augustinian friar, he did a lot of pastoral care. He was sent into congregations to uh, hear confession and also to preach. And he was confronted with these indulgences, and it was a severe problem of of pastoral care in the in the midst of the general late 15th, early 16th century crisis of pastoral care. Uh, and so uh, Luther gets into all kinds of hot water 
not so much because of indulgences that the practice and the doctrine of indulgences was still not not really worked out in in uh, dogmatic writings of the time, uh, but his hint that that was really a challenge to papal authority got him into all kinds of trouble. So he was supposed to answer to his Augustinian brothers at a meeting in Heidelberg in April of 1518. Does he talk about indulgences? No. Does he talk about papal authority? Also no. He talks about what is really the core of his theology, and at that point he identifies it as this theology of the cross, and I think uh, if we we look at Luther's whole uh, preaching and teaching over the years, there are maybe four or five points that we could single out. But in, in 1518, he identifies uh, who God is, both hidden and revealed, and who we are, no longer uh, Aristotle's uh, animal rationalis, a rational animal, uh, but instead as a person of faith, uh, who uh, doesn't solve uh, Earth's problems by by reasoning and the use of the eternal law, but who solves Earth's problems by trusting in Jesus Christ? That uh, that becomes the thing that he really wants to put out on the table, and and so he distinguishes the hidden God uh, from the revealed God. The revealed God is a pretty easy concept to grasp. God has revealed Himself above all in Jesus Christ who is savior of the world through his death and resurrection. The hidden God's a little bit trickier with Luther. Uh, in, in 1518, I'm pretty sure that he was referring to God as he really is, uh, larger than any human ability, uh, even as creature, to say nothing of as sinner, uh, to grasp. The creator is simply beyond the, the total comprehension of of. of the creature. Um, but then sometimes he uses uh, the hidden God as the God we fashion for ourselves. As, as Ludwig Feuerbach said, uh, man makes God in his own image. Uh, Luther says we do a lot of that, and, 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 and that's just stupid. Um, <laughs> and then there's a, a third kind of hiddenness in God that is actually the hiddenness of the revealed God, uh, because uh, the God reveals himself in a hidden in in hiding places that we'd never expect him. We wouldn't expect him as a kid in a uh, crib. Uh, we wouldn't expect him as a, a criminal on a cross. We wouldn't expect him as a corpse uh, in a crypt. Uh, and so the term hidden God's a little bit confusing and sometimes confused in Luther's scholarship. But Luther's main point at this point was um, there's more to God than then we can know, so don't speculate. He puts up a no trespassing sign uh, in front of the hidden God and concentrates then on what God has done in Jesus Christ and what he says to us in the scriptures. And I think that that's still uh, a helpful clue and cue for Christians as they think through uh, their relationship with our Lord. Uh, what can we know, but also what can't we know? Now, when we talk about how this hidden God has, as you just described, has actually manifested himself as the revealed God, uh, and, and here we go to Christ, it, it, the gospel itself, uh, where it, at least the, the, the pinnacle of, of how this, reveal, this revealing has unfolded, um, it, it's not only what Christ has done, which is so, it's, that's major for Luther. His entire theology of the cross comes out at this point. 
but it's also then uh, subsequently how the Spirit then uh, takes what Christ has done and and then uh, uh, reveals that to us, illumines that to our minds, and and opens our hearts to understand it. Um, for Luther, you know, we can we can talk about his doctrine of Scripture, but uh, we we should also remember Luther has a has a certain hermeneutic as well, and. Uh, before he, we could even get into that hermeneutic, uh, one of the foundational pieces is how the how we need, as interpreters, we we desperately need the Holy Spirit to even understand uh, Scripture. Now, there's a bit of a tension here because uh, you, you've written about this and, and and how on the one hand the Holy Spirit must work for us to understand, but then on the other hand, Luther says, well, this isn't a um, uh, th- this idea of the Spirit's presence, it's not some ex opera, opera operato, uh, you know, type of uh, uh, almost like a, a magic trick uh, in its blunt force. Uh, how does Luther, yeah. how, how does Luther strike that balance between between that those two? Well, I, I think he he emphasizes the. The nature of the human being, not as this rational animal who can figure out the best way to get through life by by recognizing what the eternal law says we ought to do, but instead he he has the insight that central to identifying God over and against us and us over and against God in the Old Testament, the whole series of words that have at their root the Hebrew um, word from which we get amen, this um, amen uh, sense of faithfulness, trust, uh, mutual love uh, that that really fills the Old Testament's description of God's encounter with encounters uh, with His people. Um, that's really becomes central for Luther, and so uh, that when the Holy Spirit addresses us with the word. He then also, in this recreative use of the word, in a mysterious fashion, um, causes us to trust. Uh, there are some things you can command other people to do, and there are some things you can command yourself to do. But when you and I say, trust me, we usually mean you have reason not to trust me, and we also mean uh, not that we expect you to obey the command, but it's really an invitation, a hope that you'll be able to trust us. And so this this central idea of of trust as the human reaction to a God who says, I love you, uh, and does so dramatically uh, in in coming to the cross and coming out of the empty tomb for us, I think that's, that's really central to Luther's understanding both of how God operates and what his ultimate righteousness is. Uh, as this creator who loves his creation. Um, and it, it also tells us um, exactly how we proceed then through life as, as beings who, who trust in our creator and redeemer. Now, this language of trust is so important uh, because for, for Luther, when he comes to Christ, but then also... Um, uh, also to to scripture itself, which which brings us the living Christ. Uh, when he comes to the text, uh, Luther treats it in that how you just described. He treats it in a, a trustworthy manner. 
Um, he, mm-hmm. Everything from how he's going to trust uh, the scripture as he proclaims it, to translating it, uh, to, to his theological debates, uh, all of this, uh, L- Luther uh, is assuming so much about uh, the, the trustworthiness of the Bible, um, which raises that, that, so, that, um, that important issue uh, of sola scriptura. Uh, that uh, the Reformation is so well known for. Uh, what does Luther mean by sola scriptura? And uh, why, why is it that, uh, in light of everything you just said, why is sola scriptura so important in the context of his debates with Rome? Mm-hmm. Um, Michael Horton has said uh, the, uh, the key issue is uh, regarding scripture in the 16th century is really its sufficiency. Uh, the whole medieval church had said we're dependent on scripture. The question was, is the reading of scripture sufficient in itself, or do you need the guidance of, of popes, bishops, councils, and the like, uh, the, and the ancient fathers? And uh, there's a good deal of debate right now about whether Luther really meant sola scriptura, because he, as you mentioned uh, in your introduction, uh, he, he praises uh, certain fathers, Augustine particularly, or Cyril of Alexandria was another one he cited. Um, so he didn't, didn't ignore the tradition at all, and he used it whenever he could, uh, although he, he certainly had a very critical stance too, and even with Augustine, uh, he recognized that um, Augustine's understanding of, of the righteousness that avails before God uh, wasn't uh, the view that he saw in, in Paul and John and other biblical writers. Um, so uh, Luther does count on the, the Holy Spirit, uh, but I think one of the questions that that raises is, um, why do I get the interpretation right, and and you get it wrong, even though we share this faith in Christ, uh, and and that's one of those questions that I think is a theodical question, a question of 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 justifying God. How uh, is uh, how come if the Holy Spirit is really master of the church, it's such a mess, and there are so many disagreements, and Luther tries to avoid those theodical questions. Um, all the way from why is there evil in the world of a good and, and almighty God through why are some saved and not others to uh, to why do I have to still struggle with this particular sin. He he, he avoids those questions uh, because that would lead him into theory, I think, into speculation. Mm-hmm. And what he simply wants to get back to proclaiming is um, God's demands on us and, and, and God's gift of new life in Christ to us. Um, and so, so Luther has this uh, what may seem to us as naive confidence in a God who uh, comes to us with this, as you were saying, um, a weak and foolish word uh, from a weak and foolish act of getting himself crucified. Uh, but he has the confidence that that this is a message that uh, will strike human hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit and 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 change lives and. Uh, we can amass a lot of contrary evidence, but we also have experienced in the church throughout the ages that the Holy Spirit really does use the word in that way 
and it really does bring people to life-changing faith. So well said. Uh, there's one quotation that, that you've used at, at one point uh, that, that I just really uh, value. Uh, Luther at one point says this, we do not condemn human doctrines just because they are human doctrines, for we would gladly put up with them, but we condemn them because they are contrary to the gospel and the scriptures. Uh, and that uh, those words by Luther there at the end, they're contrary to the gospel. Uh, that really gets to the heart of the matter. Um, now, of course, uh, anyone who's who's uh, wrestled through exegesis and maybe even tried to, you know, maybe pastors out there, they've tried to preach through a book of the Bible, or, or maybe it's the gospels uh, or various gospels at, at different times. They'll, they'll uh, sometimes... Uh, uh, struggle with certain uh, apparent or seeming discrepancies or differences. Uh, for, for some, it could create real anxiety uh, at, at points, uh-huh. maybe not for others. Uh, on, on the one hand, uh, I suppose one could come to Luther and say, oh, well, you know, Luther sees these discrepancies, and so he, he must not believe that, that uh, the Bible's from God or that's inspired or that is even trustworthy. Uh-huh. Uh, but Luther doesn't seem to do that. How, how though, does he deal with uh, discrepancies when he comes across them? I, he thinks the Holy Spirit might be smarter than he. <laughs> uh, he uh, he thinks that that the text masters us instead of us mastering the text. And so, a beautiful passage on um, the festival of Saint Andrew where he compares the accounts in, I forget which Gospels it is, three of the Gospels have have something about uh, Andrew's coming to faith, uh, or the situation in which Andrew supposedly uh, was confronted with Jesus, where Andrew doesn't appear, I think, in, I forget in which Gospel. But, um, but he says, well, here's a possible way of harmonizing these texts, but we don't have to harmonize them. The Holy Spirit is going to use them to speak to us. Uh, and and we just have to wait to heaven uh, comes uh, before we we solve all these problems and a couple of chronological problems in the Old Testament he says the math just doesn't add up here but that's that's not going to worry us and it just goes on um, finding again God's demands God's commands and God's promises in the text and saying this is for you that was one of his favorite phrases for you for us me. You know, when uh, we talk about Luther, his, his, under, his view of the Bible, his interpretation of the Bible, uh, and, and I like what you just said about uh, how Luther thinks, well, surely the Holy Spirit's smarter than I am. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and of course, Luther gets, you know, he gets his hands dirty, he gets into the weeds and, and will wrestle with some of those exegetical issues, but the old, at the end of the day, he doesn't take on that, that modern skepticism that others do. Um, at the same time, though, when we're talking about Luther, um, you know, we, we, we want to be careful. You're so good at this. Uh, you, you're, you're very nuanced, uh, so careful. You, you, we don't want to read Luther as, uh, you know, just, uh, a, you know, a, a 16th century fideist uh, that, that uh, doesn't have any place for reason, uh, just sort of a blind faith, that sort of thing. Uh, at, at one point, you write about how Luther uh, is sometimes misunderstood. You know, at one point, Luther will say uh, about human reason that, well, this is a whore. Uh, you know, very you know, earthy language for, from Luther, of course. Uh, this is not uncommon for him, but 
uh, sometimes here he's he's uh, describing reason in this way, very strong word for for reason. But uh, if if you read Luther at other points, he definitely relies on reason, and even at the 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 uh, the Diet of Worms, he mentions reason. So. What is this complicated, often misunderstood relationship Luther has with reason? Maybe you can clarify that for us. Um, we we love the the quote uh, comparing reason to a whore, and I think that that when he does that, he's talking about reason as a synonym uh, for uh, the way he uses philosophy in a very narrow, focused sense and also the way he uses Aristotle as the enemy. Uh, he uses Aristotle all the time, positively, uh, but he criticizes Aristotle very strongly. And I think it's because in Aristotle's system, the ultimate and absolute is not a personal creator, but the unmoved mover who, um, who moves what exists eternally. And it's this impersonal, uh, understanding of of God, of whatever is absolute and ultimate in life, that reflects then on us uh, as being to have to use reason uh, if we're going to bring any order to the world at all. Uh, that he's he's talking about when he criticizes uh, whether it be philosophy or Aristotle or um, reason. But you're but you're right. He saw reason as a very good gift of God. And, and sometimes we say, or I have said to my students, um, he thinks reason is what God has given us to govern life in what I like to call the horizontal dimension of life, what Luther called the left-handed, um, we say kingdom, but Luther also talked about God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom, and, and Satan's kingdom is not this horizontal set of relationships, so I like to talk about realms. Um, in, in the horizontal realm, uh, reason is really God's gift uh, for managing it. And even in relationship to reading scripture, he sees a, a servant role for reason and emphasizes, for instance, the importance of um, uh, the, the importance of having uh, uh, a good grasp of the languages, uh, part of the philosophical uh, uh, undergraduate curriculum, for instance. Uh, and and so he he's very positive on on a healthy use of reason. Uh, he doesn't like irrationality at all. He's not in that sense a fetist. Um, we believe against all appearances when God reveals how He operates uh, under the appearance of opposites. Luther's phrase is, um, but but he treasures reason and encourages it and. Uh, and the University of Wittenberg, for instance, was famous in its day, above all, I suppose, for its theological faculty. Uh, but it also had some, some cutting-edge astronomers uh, that, that helped publicize Copernicus, had uh, the first botanist that ever took students out in, on field trips into the woods, uh, and so on and so forth. So it was, a, it was a lively place of learning because of Luther's high appreciation of rational activity. Now, I imagine some of our listeners, you know, as, as they're uh, chewing on all this and, and, and trying to understand Luther's understanding of the Bible, Luther's understanding of biblical authority, 
his understanding of, of inspiration and and then also how the spirit is is utilizing the Bible uh, in terms of the pulpit or or the individual believer. I imagine that some of our listeners are saying, well, you know, isn't Luther, uh, isn't he a contradiction in and of himself? Because uh, we we all remember the some of that language he uses uh, where he goes to the canon. When, when he's talking about the canon, he, he looks at a uh, an epistle like James, and he says, uh, "Well, this is an epistle of straw." And, and so some some uh, have concluded, "Well, uh, Luther, for all his talk about you know biblical authority and sola scriptura and and inspiration and the Holy Spirit, uh, at the end of the day, uh, he he undermines it all with with uh, his view of the canon." Um, you've done quite a bit of work on this. Uh, how do we understand uh, Luther and James, and and how have we maybe misunderstood Luther and James? Well, I think that's a, a an important passage because it's it's been misused a lot. Uh, first of all, it suggests Luther had a loose view of the canon. Uh, he didn't take canonical questions uh, as seriously, probably as we do today. Uh, he believed that there were sixty six books uh, of the Bible that had been handed down. Um, he did observe the distinctions that, for instance, uh, St. Jerome had made uh, uh, 1,200 years earlier, 1,100 years earlier. The distinction between what we call the apocryphal books uh, was already there in James. Luther didn't really do anything that that uh, Jerome hadn't already said. Uh, these are books that we don't have in Hebrew, and so they're kind of second-class books. And then he also... Uh, uh, distinguished between uh, those books that supposedly had more or less universal acceptance and those in the New Testament that were a little harder to convince people of, such as Hebrews and James uh, and Revelation uh, and a couple others. Uh, but but the passage that you cite is, is frequently cited. First of all, uh, the point is, uh, what do these books say about Christ? And there, uh, John and and Paul in Romans, for instance, uh, simply uh, uh, offer us more than James does. Uh, straw is is uh, not as good as uh, silver and gold, I suppose, uh, but straw isn't uh, totally uh, useless. What people almost never mention is that that that's uh, that this passage is in the preface to the whole New Testament um, that Luther published in 1522. Uh, if scholars would just page back to James, they would see that in his preface to James, he says, this is a very good presentation of God's law. It just doesn't present the gospel. Uh, and so uh, it tells us a good deal about how we are to behave once once we have believed. Um, but in terms of bringing Christ to us, there's not much James has to offer. Uh, a second thing that's interesting is that that preface to the New Testament was published in all the New Testaments uh, up to 1534 when when Luther brought together the various sections of the Old Testament and his New Testament translation into the, the German Bible that uh, then has been, was used for centuries. Um, the entire preface to the New Testament is repeated in the, in the full Bible, except for that paragraph uh, comparing uh, the New Testament books. That drops out. Luther never says a word about it. 
um, in the in the protocols of the translation committee. Uh, there's no uh, trace of a discussion of whether to drop it or not. It just all of a sudden is gone. Uh, I have no idea what that really means, uh, but it does mean that uh, Luther himself found some reason or other uh, to drop it, perhaps because it, it caused the same kind of confusion uh, that, that is so common in the, in the 21st century, 20th century. Um, but but that, that's definitely a, a, a passage that's been used to misrepresent Luther a good deal. We've been talking to Robert Kolb, who is the Emeritus Professor of Systematic Theology at Concordia Seminary, St. Louis. Uh, to our listeners, uh, definitely pick up a book by uh, Robert Kolb. You, you won't walk away uh, disappointed. Uh, I, dare I say, I think you will walk away with a, a much richer understanding of not just the life of Martin Luther, but his theology. Uh, his Kolb's recent book, Martin Luther and the Enduring Word of God, uh, is uh, an excellent and robust entryway into not just Luther, but uh, some of the Lutherans that followed him. And uh, this is a work that, uh, among, among Kolb's other works, that uh, will help you understand Luther in all his 16th century context and, and nuance. Uh, Robert Cole, thank you so much for joining me on the Credo Podcast. This has been a delight. Thank you very much. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.